Let's pray together. And we are, get our hearts quiet before the Lord as we've worshiped him and as we have poured out our hearts. Pray right now that God would pour out his heart toward you, that he would give you something today that would change your life in a positive way, that he would speak to your heart. God, we do pray for this. God, we do pray that you would speak to us in a great way. Pray for these graduates today as they go off and, and adventures, and new stuff going on in their life, new places to go, new schools maybe to attend. God, I pray that you would give them something from the word today that they could take for the rest of their life to give them wisdom. And we'll pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And let's take our Bibles this morning. Uh, we want to turn to Psalm 119. And I know that... <clears throat> As we meet today, we celebrate our graduates sitting right over here, and you'll get a chance to uh, um, clap for them and, and celebrate with them in just a few moments. But as we do that, as we prepare for that, I want us to turn to Psalm 119. We have been going through a series of messages in the book of Psalms. We've been asking you to read seven Psalms during the week. We've had devotionals on Facebook from all of our staff all week long on these uh, Psalms. And then there's Psalm 119, 176 verses. And I'm going to preach it on every single one of those verses. <laughs> Not really. <clears throat> You know, you would miss lunch, guys, if, you, if, you, if I did that. No, I can't do all 176 verses, but we'll see what we can do. You know, there's a story told by George MacDonald, and the story goes like this. It's a, it's a book, and it's a, it's a story, a fictitious story, about a granddaughter that lived with her grandmother. Well, it came time where she had to go back home and live with her parents, or one of the parents, but it was a very difficult place, very difficult town, kind of, a, kind of seedy, kind of dangerous. And she was worried about the goblins in her bedroom. And uh, the story is The Princess and the Goblins by George MacDonald. And the grandmother said, look, I'm going to give you this ring. And she took the ring off. She gave it to her. And she said, look, I want you to put this under your pillow. And when you get scared, I want you to reach under your pillow and I want you to rub the ring, and a thread will come out of the ring. And I want you to follow the thread all the way to me. Don't turn back. You can't go backwards. You just kind of keep moving forward, no matter how scared you get. So one night, she heard the goblins in her room. She reaches under the pillow. She begins to rub the ring. A thread came from it. And as she closed her eyes, she began to follow the ring. And as she followed, or followed the thread, and she followed this thread, it became more dangerous. She, she became, felt like less protected. The goblins were there, and even leading, the thread was leading her into a cave and where the goblins were. And she thought, I got to turn back, but she couldn't go backward. She could only go forward. And so she went into the cave, and the story ended up, she became kind of the hero of the story, saving a lot of other people as well as getting to her grandmother. And as long as she followed the thread, she was going to get where she needed to go. Now, I want to ask you a question. I ask this of the graduates, but I ask this of all of us here. If there was a thread that I could give you this morning, and, if, and I were to say to you, I want you to follow this thread all the way home. It'll always protect you. It'll always give you wisdom, always give you direction, never let you down. Would you take the ring with the thread? Well, I don't have a thread. I don't even have a ring to give you this morning, but I do have a book. And the book is the Bible. 
Now, I know that the Bible's kind of fallen on hard times among some today. Andy Stanley has said, he never says anymore, the Bible says, the Bible says in his sermons. He always quotes Paul or Peter or one of the other uh, writers of the Bible because that doesn't mean anything to people anymore, that the Bible says something. You see, we are in a day of relative truth. Now, what that means is basically truth comes from within you. You look at your past, the present, the future, you look at the surroundings, you listen to the news, whatever you're going to do to get information, and you come to your own personal truth. And whatever that is, as long as you believe it, it's true. Now, the problem to that is it doesn't work anywhere else. I mean, if you sit on top of this building and decide to jump off and said, hey, there's no law of gravity. I just believe there's no law of gravity. Repeat that three times. And then you jump off the building. I guarantee you there's going to be some broken bones there. You know, you're, you're going to crash and burn. Why? Because there's an absolute truth to all that. But when truth comes from the inside, then we become very insecure. We really don't know if we really have the wisdom necessary to move through the different things of life. And so the question is this morning, do we have an absolute truth on the outside of us that can guide us in this life? And if so, is that the Bible? And if so, what do we do with it? Well, in Psalm 119, we can read this and understand there that this 176 verses is really just talking about the Bible. It's talking about the longest psalm, the longest chapter, and the entire Bible is about the Bible. And here's a guy that's in a lot of trouble, and he's just thinking about the Bible because he wants Jesus to remain, or the God, to remain on his throne. You know, we said last week, the only, uh, the, the only master that will not make you miserable is Jesus, and everybody has a master. Everybody has someone that is leading their life, guiding their life, and guiding them to the different decisions they make in life. Who is on the throne of your life? You know, who's in that mirror of desire as, as you look at it? We said last week, one of the ways that we under, understand that we need to overcome the misery gap in our life, and the misery gap is that which we uh, know we ought to feel according to the Bible, and the joy that we ought to feel there versus the misery we, we find ourselves in, even as believers sometimes. With all the words of encouragement, all the sermons of encouragement, the songs of encouragement, we need those because of this misery gap. How do we uh, cure that? Well, you have to trust Christ because that's the only way that you're going to keep him on the throne. It's the only way you're not going to be miserable in this life. That He's the only God that will not let you down. But we said that Thanksgiving is so important to that. To level the playing field as Satan attacks God and everything he has to say to you about how bad your life is. You've got to have a heart of gratitude. But there's something else. And that is something has to fuel that trust every day. The Bible says it uh, this way. Paul said, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so as we look at this psalm, we look at it from A to Z. The entire, in fact, if you look at your, uh, your text this morning at Psalm 119, you'll find it about a third of the way through the Bible, maybe a little bit more. And we find Aleph and then Beit and Gimel, Dalit, Hey, and all these Hebrew words that start off these different paragraphs uh, of eight verses. But what are they about? Well, they're the, the Hebrew alphabet from A to Z, you might say. And the psalmist is saying he believes that this is the word of God from A to Z. It's all of it. And as we look at this, we're going to pick and choose a few of the verses. You can read it in its entirety 
on your own, but I want to answer four questions real quickly. Number one, what is the Bible? Number two, why is it important? Number three, what do you do with it? And number four, how do you apply it? What is it? Because just because I want to believe it's the Bible, the word is the word of God, doesn't make it so. But I want you to look, beginning in verse one, how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Notice it says the law. That is mentioned 25 times in this passage. And it's talking about the rules and regulations. And automatically you think to yourself, wow, you know, if I believe the Bible and follow the Bible, it's going to take the rulership of my life and, and, put, and put restrictions on my life. But it says the law of God. Then it talks about the testimonies of God, verse 2, mentioned 25 times in this psalm. Then the precepts in verse 4, he says, you have ordained your precepts that you should keep them diligently. Precepts is prescription, where we get our word prescription. So these are the prescriptions that God has for us. Then verse 5, oh, that my ways may be established. That is a part of your life to keep your statutes. Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. The word is mentioned 23 different times in this psalm. And so over and over and over again, we see a description of what the psalmist believes the Bible to be. Now here, here's, just a, here, here's just a notion, okay? Here's just something I want you to consider before we get further into this text, and that is this. Do we have a sovereign God? Now, if we have a sovereign God who rules over everything and we, that same God, wants to be intricately involved in our life, proven by the fact that he sent his son to die on the cross for us and was resurrected on the third day, if he wants to be in our life, then he has, he has the desire to be in our life. He has the power to be in our life. Don't you think as he guides us in this life, he's wanting to give us an accurate guidebook to get where we need to be. He's either sovereign, he's not. He's either capable of doing it, if he either cares enough to do it, or he does not. Second Peter 1.16 says this, this is the New Testament verse. For we do not follow cleverly, Peter says, devised tales, myths, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so the scriptures were written by eyewitness accounts. Notice what he says here. He says they're reliable documents. They're not myths. They're not just tales that we're telling. This this book is a book that's grounded in history, and that's important to realize. There are other books. There are other religions that have books that that describe tribes, for example. Uh, I don't want to just pick on one church, but the Mormon church describes tribes that are in America where Jesus rose from the dead over in the Middle East. He came over to America with the American Indians, and it mentions different tribes in there. You can't find any historical document or any documents or, or for that matter, archaeological findings that would point to the existence of those tribes. But in the Bible, all of these, through archaeology, through other historical documents, every tribe of the New Testament or the Old Testament can be accounted for. I went to Southwestern Seminary, and in the library, you have this huge room full of these artifacts that one of, one of the professors used to go uh, during the summers and do these diggings over in the Middle East. And he brought back all these artifacts. I remember uh, somebody, in fact, he was telling us in class that a lot of times uh, uh, back in the day, professors were saying, okay, where are the Hittites? 
Hittites. We can't find the Hittites. They're in the Bible. We can't find anything about the Hittites in history or in archaeology. In 1906, an archaeological digging dug up evidence of the Hittites. They found the Hittites. So every, so it's a historical book. It's grounded in history. But also, not only that, and it's founded also in, in history and archaeology, but also it has in it, within it, a claim that these were actually eyewitnesses. And so people were not just simply dreaming up something. Now, think about it for just a moment. When you have 24,000 New Testament documents, that's not to say that every single book has 24,000 uh, copies of the New Testament. There's fragments, there's books here, there's books there. But there's enough, many thousands of each one, to compare the writings of what, is, what was originally written. The latest document that we have, the furthest back in history, occurred only seven, was found 70 years after the New Testament was being finished written in AD 95, the book of Revelation. And so the last book was written before the close of the first century. 70, less than 70 years later, we have the first document. Now, we don't have things like Plato, Aristotle. In fact, Aristotle, 69 different manuscripts of Aristotle. We have Plato, only five. And there are many, 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 many years, decades and decades and decades upon decades uh, of findings that we find uh, among that. But we don't, we don't doubt Aristotle. We don't doubt Plato and all the other um, uh, um, things that we find in archaeology. We don't, find, we don't doubt those things in history. Why? Because they don't tell us how to live. The problem with the Bible is that it tells us how to live. It re reproves us sometimes. It corrects us sometimes. And so, therefore, it's going to be easy for us to say, I reject that part. But notice, 70 years, that's the same thing as World War II to us. It's like saying, well, World War II didn't happen. I don't believe the historical um, documents at all of World War II. Why should I believe all that? Well, because there were eyewitnesses to that time. I knew some of them. In fact, some of them are alive today. My dad uh, went overseas less than 10 years after World War II was over to serve in Japan. And just a few years, in fact, not even that long, just a couple of years afterwards. So he saw the devastation there uh, that were dropped that happened because of the war and the bombs that are being dropped. We have actual eyewitnesses, and that's what Peter is saying. We have eyewitnesses of what the accounts, the historical accounts of actually what happened in the Bible. But here's, here's the biggest thing, just to cut to the chase. No other document, no other religion has predictive prophecy but the Bible. For example, Old Testament, 2,000 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the New Testament. 2,000 of them. Uh, born of a Jewish woman. Born of a virgin. A descendant, Jesus was going to be a descendant of Abraham. From the tribe of Judah, of the house of David. Born in Bethlehem. His way was prepared by a forerunner, John the Baptist. And anointed by the Holy Spirit. Now when you take in all of those accounts, those was just about Jesus. 2,000 of them, most of them are about him. But what about predictive prophecy of the second coming? I went over some of this when we studied the book of Revelation on Sunday night. But here, we got earthquakes. In the last days, the Bible says, there's going to be a plethora of earthquakes all throughout the world. In recorded history, before the 11th century, there were only 11 recorded earthquakes. In the 1900s, which would give us a little bit more accurate picture, I think, but in the 1900s, uh, less about 100 earthquakes were detected all across the world. Since 
2010, in the last six and a half years, 6,500 earthquakes have occurred and recorded in the world. More earthquakes have happened in the last six years than all, all the earthquakes put together all throughout history. That's predictive prophecy. Israel will become a nation. That happened in 1948. The rise of the occult, vampires, witches, and, and, and the like. The increase of knowledge. We know about computers today, and now the next thing we're going to be dealing with is artificial intelligence and what that's going to mean to the economy and to jobs. And, and who would think that we would have artificial intelligence even, even just 20 or 30 years ago? That sounds like science fiction. But there's been an increase and a boom of knowledge. Some of you right now in the workforce, you haven't been to college in 20 or 30 years, and you realize that the kids coming out, excuse me, the young people coming out of college know more than you do. You didn't even study all that. Why? There's been a boom and an increase of knowledge. Apostasy, a great falling away of the church. I sent to you, uh, I sent something on Facebook not too long ago. And if, if, you know, if you're not on Facebook with me, please uh, request that. I'd like to keep up with you. Uh, but um, on Facebook about the Babylon Bee. Now the Babylon Bee, in case I, I send anything like that on Facebook to you, is a satire. It's not real, okay? Just satire. You know, some people take it seriously and, and, and they, they start interacting uh, and in this particular one, they, they give names and faces and towns and cities to these people. And, uh, and one particular guy, uh, family, was before a counselor, and they were lamenting over the fact that their, their children had not adopted their once-a-month religion. Okay? It's supposed to be kind of funny. All right? And he says, you know, yeah, we went to the beach a lot, and we went to ball games, and we did this, and we did that. But every time we did not have anything else to do, we went to church. But now our kids aren't going at all. And they were just almost crying about it. He said, it must be the church's fault. There's been this great, I was talking to a bunch of pastors and one of them said, well, one of them asked the question, he said, um, do we, should we do short series of messages or longer series of messages? Like go through a book, whatever. One guy said, well, I went through 21 weeks in the book of John, but to most of my people, that was a seven week series. <laughs> you know? And so it's happening, it's happening everywhere a great falling away from even the need of it. Materialism, we have more money to do with what we want to do things with. Preoccupation with sex, we know that's true. A persecution of the church happening all over the world. But here's the thing, this word of God claims in itself to be God's word. It says in 2 Timothy, or 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will. That means it didn't come from man. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Well, the other thing I'd like to throw in, it just, it just works. Okay, it just, it just works. I've shared this um, before um, during the uh, dinner with the pastor, my testimony. And uh, I, when I was going to college, I started going to this campus ministry. And um, they started, I started hanging around with these five or six people that were reading the Bible. And so we'd go out to, for pizza or whatever uh, after the Sunday night service or after uh, whatever we were doing uh, on that Bible study. We'd go out and they'd start talking about where were they were reading the Bible. And they're sharing what that meant to them. And I thought, wow, sooner or later I've got to participate and I have no idea. I'd never read the Bible. 
Now, I read it in Sunday school and all that kind of stuff, passages, but as far as reading through them, never, at 19 years old, I'd never read the Bible. And so I thought, well, I better start reading it because they're going to be, they're going to be talking to me and saying, well, you know, what, what is God saying to you through the Bible? And all I could do is say, well, I need to read it. You know, that's, my, that's the only thing he was saying to me. So I started reading it, and by the time I got through the end of the book of Matthew, I gave my life to Christ. And when I gave my life to Christ, I never took it back because the Bible spoke to me personally. It, was God's, it seemed like God's personal word to me. Now, why is that important? Why is it important? Real quickly, 22 blessings in Psalm 119 about the Bible and having Jesus on the throne of your life. But here's the thing. It builds our faith. Look in verse uh, 5 real quickly. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon your commandments. I will give thanks to you with, with, a, uh, with an uprightness of heart. Why? Because you're trusting God. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. What is the fuel to your faith? How can you keep Jesus on the throne? You keep him on the throne because you're trusting. How do you trust him? You build your faith through the reading and the studying and the applying of the Bible. Secondly, it cleanses your life. Down in verse uh, 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it, the word, according to your word. Verse 11, your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now listen, life's tough. I'm not going to get up here and tell you that this is, uh, this is heaven. This is not heaven. Life can be difficult. The older you get, the more you, you feel like you're losing. Life can be uh, can offer a lot of misery if you want it to, if you're not prepared. But yet, in fact, it's not even the, the misery that comes, it's how you respond to the, the adversity that comes in your life. But I guarantee you this, I'll guarantee you something here. If you stay away from sinful acts and sinful habits, your life is going to be far better than it would be if you'd got involved in that. You say, well, the word of God's cleansing me because it makes me have a desire because I trust Christ. It gives me fuel and gives me inspiration to obey him. And if I obey him, then maybe I won't get that disease. Maybe I won't go to jail. Maybe I won't get addicted to that. Maybe I won't have that, that bad marriage and marry the wrong person. Maybe I won't be like the 70% of the people in America that majored on the wrong thing in college because they're not doing anything with it right now. They're doing something else. If I stay away from the wrong things of life, it's going to make life longer and it's going to make life better. And he says, the word of God will help you in doing that. Then it brings wisdom to life. I look at verse 17, but all the way through verse 24. But let me just read verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Open my eyes. Give me light. The Bible says in verse 105 that the word of God is a lamp into my feet. It's a light. It's knowledge. It's wisdom. How are you going to make good decisions? You know, some of you, some of you guys are going to be, I mean, you're going to be declaring a major. You're going to be getting married maybe before you get out of college or right afterwards, not too long. How are you going to make those decisions? How are you going to make a decision on whether you ought to transfer from one job to the next? You say, well, I think I can make my own decision. Well, how, how are you doing with that? Well, I actually shouldn't, shouldn't say that. Somebody says, well, I like to think independently. I'm an independent thinker, and I don't want something from the outside telling me what to do. Let me say this. None of us are independent thinkers. Nobody on the face of the earth 
is an independent thinker. In fact, back in the 60s and 70s, I can remember, and uh, you know, <clears throat> some of us remember that, and others can see movies about it. You know, flower children. You know, it's amazing to me that we were independent thinkers. Boy, we just thought for ourselves. It just so happened that all of us had long hair. That's just a coincidence. And we're bell-bottom pants. Do you believe that? Say, oh, man, bell-bottom pants. And years from now, our young people are going to be looking back, and they're going to be showing pictures uh, to their kids about when they were back in high school and college, and they're going to be laughing. He says, man, you mean you paid that much, and there are holes all in those jeans? you got to be kidding. See, none of us think outside of our culture. Slavery. Well, let me, Shakespeare uh, wrote a play, The Merchant of Venice, and it's anti-Semitic. So how in the world could he do that? Because Shakespeare was a man of his time. He couldn't think outside of his culture. Somebody says, well, how in the world can we say that, that, that slavery was ever right? Aristotle would say, how can you ever say it was wrong? Because every civilization in history basically has had slavery. How do we get out of slavery? Because the people of the 11th and 12th century were looking into the Bible and said, you know, that's wrong. We got to do something else. How do you think outside of your culture, even doctrinally? When my, my, uh, the previous generation from me came up. It was preachers like W.A. Criswell. It was a Schofield Bible. Anybody ever heard of the Schofield Bible? Anybody ever had one of those? Am I speaking? Okay, a few people. It was this doctrine called dispensationalism. And you had seven different dispensations. Four of them just happened to be in the book of Genesis, but seven dis uh, different dispensations. And basically, you don't need to understand so much that, but Dallas Theological Seminary, W.A. Criswell, uh, C.I. Schofield, Charles Ryrie, all these guys believe that. Nothing wrong with that. It's a good outline of the Bible. But it was popular to believe that, and it was, it was very unpopular to challenge that. I mean, if you challenged that, you were sort of on the outside looking in. You were kind of a liberal, theological liberal, if you didn't believe that back in that day. Today, it's Calvinism. And the only reason I bring this out is not to criticize dispensationalism or Calvinism. I'm just saying this generation has, has theologians that come along that speak to them about a certain thing. Now, I used to... Uh, consider myself probably, at least a lot of people would say, well, you are a Calvinist because you believe in the sovereignty of God and eternal security. But there's a brand of it that would say you're elected, a brand of it anyway, that says you're either elected to go to heaven or elected to go to hell and you have no choice. No choice in the matter at all. And the only reason you evangelize, evangelize is out of obedience to the Lord. Now, prior to 1997, John MacArthur, who is a Calvinist, by the way, and someone I read quite a bit uh, of, uh, John MacArthur said he was kind of like the only Calvinist around other than the Presbyterians and the Re Reformed people. He said he was about it. There was nobody around. The last 20 years, it's just taken it by storm. And if you, you can't, you, it's hard to challenge that. It's hard to think outside of your culture. None of us are independent thinkers. We are, we are I don't want to say prisoners. I don't want to say totally held captive. But we are heavily influenced by the culture around us. And the only way that we can be an independent thinker and to think globally and historically accurate is to have something objective outside of us so we can challenge the culture with an absolute truth. So how do you have this kind of wisdom? You say, well, 
you know, I just feel like the, the Bible, I'm kind of conflicted, uh, Pastor, with the Bible because it, it challenges me on certain things. And I just don't agree with it. For example, I agree with that God is a God of love, but not a God of wrath, God of judgment. I don't believe that. Where, where do you get that he's a God of love? Where do you find that? Well, you find that in the Bible, the same place you find the other characteristics of God. You see, here's the problem. If you have an absolute truth outside of you that is from God, then, as Tim Keller would put it, it's going to challenge every single culture and civilization that's ever lived and ever been a part of this world because it disagrees with something of every culture. For example, the people in the Middle East, they look at the Bible and what it has to say about sex, they would say, oh, that's right, we agree with that. But about forgiveness, they don't believe that at all. That challenges them, conflicts with them. Uh, the Western civilization here in America, many people, at least outside the church, would say, oh yeah, I believe in love and forgiveness. I believe in that part of the Bible, but not about the sex. I mean, come on, that's archaic at best. Or they'll even say, because they haven't read the Bible, God doesn't even say that, and he does. And so we're conflicted. In fact, just the, the fact that the Bible conflicts with every civilization in history points to the fact that it is the word of God, not against it. But it has to conflict. It has to. And we don't think independently today. It's just kind of going more and more. In fact, let me give you an example. Horror movies vampires. You might know what I'm talking about, blood-sucking vampires, okay? In the old days, when I watched a vampire movie time to time, <clears throat> um, there was a way that you combat the vampires. How do you do that? The cross, sure, and Italian food. <laughs> you know, garlic. And you had a cross, and immediately, you know, the vampire, you know, oh, he, he would cower back. But in later movies, in fact, our young people may not even know this, but because in, in, in the later movies, it's any religious symbol. It doesn't matter what the religious symbol is as long as you believe it. See, the truth now is coming from the inside. And that can never be thought of independently. You're always going to be a slave to that culture. And the only way to know the truth and true wisdom and making great decisions in your life is to have an absolute truth that's outside of you. Real quickly, what else does the Bible do? Verses 25 through 32, if we had time, it encourages the heart. It encourages you. It teaches you the ways of God, verses 33 through 40. In fact, in verse 33, it says this, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the very end. And then the thing I want to touch on just briefly and before I move to the next point, it enables us to experience God because that, that's the main thing. That's the main thing. God enlarges our heart according um, to verse 130. In fact, let's just look at that. Verse 130 says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I long for your commandments. Make your face, verse 35, shine upon your servant. Teach me your statutes. The whole idea 
of knowing God's word is to know God. The greatest thing about us is what we know about God. The greatest thing about the Bible is what it teaches us about God, that experience that we have with the Lord. You say, well, I just don't understand. I think it contradicts. Doesn't doesn't the Bible have contradictions in it, Pastor? Well, you know, I've read the Bible many times now, and I've, I've yet to see those contradictions. But here's what I see. And one of the verses it says here in verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. Somebody says, well, you know, in the Old Testament, it says it's okay to marry a lot of different people. Man, you can have many wives as you want. Look at Solomon. Look at David. They, they were, in fact, David was a man of God anyway. And um, he married so many wives, so God was okay with that. I mean, he was, never, it never says in the Bible that God's okay with that. In fact, all the problems that David and Solomon ever had in their life was because they had more than one wife. Well, I hope none of you have experienced that with David and Solomon. But, okay, here's, here's the problem. to the You know, God never says that. It's a narrative. So how do you know it's a narrative? It's, it's called unfolding. For example, this is a sheet of my notes, one of the sheets uh, that I had to, uh, to kind of jot down a lot of notes before I, I prepared this message. And it says right here on this little card, it says, what is it? Um, why is it important? I mean, my four points. And you say, well, that's the whole message. Man, that's quick. One, two, three, four. You, man, you can mention those in five seconds and we're, we're gone. We're finished. Are we finished yet? No, we're not finished yet. Somebody's, oh, you know, we're not finished. Okay, we're not finished, but we're almost finished. However, ooh, if I open it up, unfold it, now I have more. I understand more about the message I'm about to preach. And then when I unfold it more, I understand more. And then, man, I've got the, I got the whole front page. I know exactly where this sermon's going now because I've read the whole thing. That's what the Bible says about unfolding. The psalmist is saying, you know, there's something here on the surface that's so beautiful. But the more I unfold it, the deeper I go and the deeper and the deeper and I understand it better. And suddenly you think, oh, there, that's not a contradiction at all. Now I understand it. There's an unfolding here of the Bible. So, what do you do with it? What do you, what do, you do with it? I'm just going to kind of combine the last couple of points. What do you do with it? Notice it says in verse 1, it says, those, the way is blameless. Notice in verse 3, they walk in his ways. Verse 5, oh, that my ways may be established. Now, this is an interesting Hebrew word. It, it means to come to a point where you instinctively obey. It's part of your life. You instinctively obey. What is the goal of all this? What should we do with the Bible? We ought to read it. We ought to study it. We ought to find out what it meant then. Then we find out what it means to us today, and then we obey it. And it becomes so much a part of our life that it becomes instinctive. So what do we need to do? We need to believe and take God's word, verse by verse, I mean the whole, all of it, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All of it is inspired. It means, it means God breathed. God breathed every single scripture. And if you don't believe it all, you, you need to wrestle with that. There's many books written on the proofs, but what I would challenge you to do is read it. Read the Bible and let it speak to you. 
Secondly, what we need to do is refuse to be offended by it. Just refuse. It's going to conflict with your life. It is. Whether it's a sermon, you know, people say, well, I don't like to go to church. You know, I get my toes stepped on. What's happening is that the Bible is confronting you. The Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and then for training in righteousness. It's going to conflict. Otherwise, there's no growth. In fact, there's no growth in relationship unless there's a little, little disagreement, unless there's some conflict, unless people can go back and forth a little bit and talk. And there's no growth in the Christian life. There's no change in the Christian life. As every time you come across something in the Bible, you say, oh, I don't believe that. And all you're doing, as Dean Martin Lord Jones would say, all you're doing is creating a God of your own image. Because he never conflicts with you. Never be offended by the word. And you say, well, how do you do that? Well, you, you really put Jesus on the throne because you're, you're falling in love with him. Okay, let me, you know, I know... Uh, this generation, I've studied a little bit about it. Not, not everybody believes the same thing. You know, we, we put everybody into categories, you know. Well, the boomers believe this, and the busters believe this, and the millennials this, and, you know, everybody believes something a little different. I get it. But all of us are Americans, and we believe in freedom. And this generation, the key word, the key buzzword that I've experienced with people that are closest to me in the millennial generation is that we want freedom. We want to be free. Interesting thing, um, an interview was done with a lady author, and um, they just asked her, said, well, how's your life been? She's older now. She said, how's your life been? Oh, it's been good, pretty good. So you pretty much, I mean, you've got all kinds of money. I guess you can do whatever you want to do, right? You've got the freedom to do whatever you want to do. And she says, well, I've been free most of the time except for when I've been in love. Well, immediately, that doesn't make any sense, Right? And so the interview asked her, what do you mean by that? And she says, well, the times that I, was, I were in love, that person had a lot of control over my life. The times I wasn't in love, I was free to do whatever I wanted to do. For example, some of these young people, you know, you're not dating anybody. You're pretty free. Then you, you, you kind of meet somebody. Then you, you date them. And you go out on another date, another one. And pretty soon there's a real connection there. And, and you're not maybe going, going together. I mean, that's what we used to say, you know. You're not, you're not together. What do they call that now? Don't, don't shout it out because I wouldn't understand it anyway. You know, so they call that something today. And, um, and so we used to call it kind of going together. Not quite there. And so the guy doesn't ask her out for a date that weekend because he's going to go out, um, you know, hunting and fishing with his, with his friends that weekend. He comes back on Sunday night. He gets a phone call. Where have you been? What do you mean, where have I been? Well, I mean, where, where have you been? I mean, you didn't call me all weekend. You didn't come by to see me all weekend. And he suddenly realizes now that he has sort of have, has a relationship. There's accountability there. There's a lack of freedom. And it's just beginning, by the way. It just, it's just beginning. I mean, it is, isn't it? I mean, the guy says, hey, I don't need a, you know, hey, if I get a job at, you know, I can work at Starbucks, good job. I can work at Burger King, good job. I don't, it doesn't matter. Now he gets married and he thinks, whoo, I got to make a living. Now he's not as free as he used to be. He can't work part-time anymore. He's working full-time. But here's the thing. When you're in love with someone, it takes away a certain amount of your freedom. The deeper the love goes, 
the deeper, the less freedom that you have. In fact, when you're in love with someone, <clears throat> what do you do? You, you start studying, you know, especially when you're dating them, you start studying what they like and what they don't like. In fact, there's <clears throat> these comedy, romantic comedy movies are out, some of them at least, and they'll talk about the girl, the guy getting so involved in the other person, they forget who they are. They can't decide whether, how they like their eggs anymore because they like them in every way their boyfriend likes them, that kind of thing. You know what movie I'm talking about. I don't, but you do. But anyway, <laughs> I can't remember it. Um, you start studying them because what do you want to do? You want to do everything you can to please them. So you study hmm, what they like, what they don't like, what they like, what they don't like. In fact, if you stop doing that, your marriage is probably not what it needs to be. But when you put Jesus on the throne and you fall in love with him, you're going to want to know, Jesus, what does it take to please you? I want to know more about you. I want to become more like you. Yeah, you're less free, but let me ask you this. Even though the Bible says the truth just sets you free, free of sin, free of a lot of other encumbrances in your life. Well, let me ask you something. When were you the most happy? When is a person more joyful? When is a person more complete than when they're in love? What's, what's better, free and totally alone or in love and someone's in love with you that cares about you more than any other thing in the world? That's what it means with Jesus on the throne. And if you love Jesus, God, that's why Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. The last thing I want us to look at this morning real quickly, if you've never received Christ in your life, if you've never put him on the throne, you've got to receive the master of the Bible. Jesus is the only master that will not make you miserable. Everybody has a master. Everybody you know, maybe our young people, it's, it's, it's a person or it's, it's a career or it's school or it's popularity. And some of you, it's your job. Everybody has, a, everybody has a God. Jesus is the only God that sits on the throne that will make you fulfilled, love you back, and not make you miserable. Have you ever received him? Because he gives you the thread today and he just says, follow the thread. You're scared? I'll protect you. Follow the word of God. Are you wondering, what in the world am I going to do next? Follow the thread. He'll give you wisdom. God, I can't get over this addiction. What am I going to do? Follow the thread. He'll change your life. But first, you have to receive him into your heart. And so I'm going to ask you, have you ever done that? Have you ever trusted him, really trusted him as your Savior and Lord? Let's bow for prayer. And uh, as we get our hearts quiet before the Lord, what about you? What about you? Have you ever received him into your heart? You know, there, I speak not just to our young people who may be, you know, you may be, uh, I don't know, leaving the church, leaving town, and maybe you never affiliate with the church, at least not for a long, long time, maybe forever, because the, uh, the message of the gospel has not reached your heart I speak to parents, grandparents, brothers and sisters who are here for the graduates. What about you? If something were to happen to you tonight, do you know you go to heaven? Do you know that Jesus is your Lord? I'm going to invite you right now to pray a prayer with me. If you mean this prayer, Jesus, 
I believe, will come and live inside your heart. Because the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Pray with me now. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying for me. Thank you that you want to be my Lord and my God. And you only want what's best for me. I receive your word today as I receive you into my heart. In Jesus' name. Now with heads bowed and eyes closed again. As a believer, would you just say to God, Lord, I want to become a student of your word. So I'll have the wisdom I need, the knowledge that I need, the love that I need for you. And I would realize how much you love me every day. Help me to read it every day. Every day to get that fuel. As such as in me is, God, I commit to doing that. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.